I carried a lot of shame from having the eating disorder and, and around that because, you know, people would be like, oh, you're in such good shape. And I'd be like, uh -huh, yeah, well, fuck, you want to know what I have to do to get that? But with CrossFit, everything that I did, I was had earned. I didn't, I never cheated, never cut corners. I never, there was no, there was nothing that I was, I felt nothing but pride about my success in CrossFit because I felt that I'd earned it through my hard work. I'd worked hard and I'd not only had a good outcome, I'd had a great outcome. So that gave me, that made it of such high fucking value to me as well that with that also came a sense of kind of like, insanity like my training had to be fucking perfect my training if i had a bad training day holy shit i was like there's something wrong with me oh my god like you're not you aren't who you think you are you don't have this value that you've now that you feel like you have like this intrinsic value as well which was a new thing for me to feel and so there, that just brought so much stress and anxiety with it, which drove me mad, which meant that every year I'd finish the games and be like, all right, I quit. I'm never doing this again. It's too hard. And then I just would keep coming back because I still did love it. And then that all kind of, yeah, kept going until 2017 when I missed out on the games for the first time. And then that was kind of like a huge turning point for me in so many aspects, but specifically as an athlete, where I started to look at what was the mental cost of doing this. This is the Limitless Athlete Podcast. I'm Tom Foxley, founder of MindsetRx and your host. And I believe mental health is something we are all training, whether we realize it or not. I don't know what's gonna happen, but I'm willing to work as hard as I can. There is no past, there's no future, there's just this moment right here. If I did that, if I can get through that, like, come at me. Changing how I saw myself, like, as a man, not just as, as an athlete. It's okay that I struggle. It's okay. That's part of the deal. It's how I respond to it. Today on the Limitless Athlete Podcast, you'll be listening to a conversation between multiple-time CrossFit Games athlete Khan Porter and myself. Khan has always been on my radar since I found CrossFit. Of course, he was a great athlete, but I sensed there was a depth to him that you don't often find. And sure enough, it's his conversations around mental health, which made him a must-feature guest on this podcast. His piece on Morning Chalk Up, an uncomfortable conversation, details his experiences with a variety of mental health challenges and an eating disorder. It is, as the name implies, an uncomfortable read is possibly one of the most important articles on CrossFit and mental health that I've read. We all have mental health. It's not a binary thing. Just as our physical health exists on a continuum from sickness to wellness to fitness, so does our mental health. So whilst those who resonate with the idea that they have mental health problems will get a lot from this podcast, those who don't resonate with that will also benefit from listening to this. We are always conditioning our mindset whether we're doing it consciously or otherwise. Khan speaks candidly throughout this conversation and we discuss many things, including the value of writing down your thoughts as a kind of mental purge, how basing self-worth on performance or anything else external can be devastating to our mental health, how we cannot dismiss our subjective experience, exploring the darkness of our shadow self and even Khan's use of psychedelics and the influence they've had on his mental health. Unfortunately, we didn't get around to discussing the two topics of much 
much interest to myself, craft beer and Khan's skincare routine. Um, apparently there were more pressing topics. Alongside this episode, we'll be releasing the debrief. This is where we attempt to boil down what we've learned in my podcast. It features myself and our head coach, Rachel Burnett. And this is going to be released either on Thursday or Friday, so make sure you subscribe. Now, let's get on to the show with Khan Porter. So let's start this with, firstly, a thank you. Um, thanks for writing that piece that you put on Morning Chalk Up. Um, I found that was like... There was elements of it that obviously I didn't relate to, but there was core parts of it that was like, man, I could have written this. Like I could have, mm-hmm. like there was elements like the, um, like all the other kids knowing how to be kids. And I was just like, fuck, why not want to be in a kid properly? Like, why am I thinking <laughs> this? Like, the, yeah. how they all so certain? That was like really, I just resonated with that, like the emotional sensitive side of it as well. Like anxiety, like there's, there's certain things that I really didn't resonate with and there's some things that was like that was absolutely like nailed on my experience and I mm-hmm. and I know that that has resonated with a lot of people as well so firstly thank you for writing that and sharing that um second Pleasure, buddy what inspired you to write it uh so uh Justin from Morning Chalk Up asked if I would do a piece on mental health and sort of share my own mental health story and I have in the past on like podcasts spoken openly about my mental health. I have on other sort of like platforms, my own Instagram spoken about mental health as well, but I'd never really gone into depth and I'd never really gone into this kind of like, like almost in a chronological order as well of like, Hey, so like this was like from A to B to C to D, like this is kind of a mental health history. And when I say mental health history, like my mental health journeys ongoing and in fact i've been out of oz now for four months and it's been a huge part of what i've been doing has been trying to kind of continue that process of working on my mental health in the broader i'm sure we'll talk about like the broader sense of the term possible and so i think there was there was two two things for me i like you sort of said you resonated with a lot of it anytime i have spoken really openly about my mental health i have had that feedback that other people have uh, resonated with it And so to me, whilst I have a platform and an ability to be asked to speak about my own experiences, when I can share experiences that people may be able to relate to and in that kind of relating to it, find some kind of peace or comfort in knowing that they're not alone or that there are other people experiencing the same thing. You know, we connect through shared experiences so much. I will always take that opportunity. So when Justin asked me, I said, yes. Uh, He had someone interview me. I kind of read it was written very in this very journalistic style, brilliantly written, but Mm. I I studied journalism for a while ago. So I kind of knew that that was how it was going to turn out. And I sort of asked him, I was like, listen, man, can I just write it from scratch myself? And if this is going to, if I'm going to go this deep and talk about this much stuff, it's got to be in my words and it's got to be written by me. Uh, And otherwise, I'm sorry, I just can't, I can't have someone else write my story for me, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's so interesting and so important to use the precise words, like the precision of language mm. is something that we learn. And like, you're, yeah, so you obviously studied that and for, from a like personal experience and also through your education as well, um, which I, I really want to dig into. But the fact that you, um, you were able to say, oh no, this is, this is what it means to me. And that obviously showed yeah. that very heartfelt and sincere. 
Yeah, and I think like certain parts needed. I think I thought certain parts needed to be uh, emphasized, and other parts needed to be very much spoken about unemotionally, like not not emotionally detached, but in a kind of very matter of fact way. There was just a lot of things that like a lot of nuance within the way that I wanted the language to tell my story that I knew I could only portray if I did it myself. I should just say that for the start. I'll just write it, but. Yeah. But yeah, no, it was good, man. Like I was, I was happy with it. I think it was extremely anxiety provoking for me because I knew like literally I, I switched off all my notifications from the morning chalk up. I never looked at any of their posts that they did about it because I knew, I mean, mental health is, was still not there when it comes to talking about mental health um, as a whole. I know anytime I speak about mental health, there is going to be negative feedback. There is going to be a lot, of shit that goes into that. I think people are very narrow minded when they look at mental health for starters. So it kind of polarizes people before you can even context of different mental health conversations. But um, it was still something that I wanted to do because it's like a, is it the whole idea of if, if, if a hundred people read it and 20 of those people take something from it? Cool. It's 20 more people. And those 20 people probably desperately needed that versus the other 80 that think it's a crock of shit <laughs> yeah yeah you like it's a really vulnerable thing to do to open yourself up to that kind of to, to that kind of feedback and because there's a few things that are vulnerable there one of them is just admitting things to yourself which you've obviously done to, like you've written a lot and journaled a lot i'm guessing mm-hmm. in going into mm-hmm. this piece. Yes. um okay. so you like you, you've done that to yourself but still there's the formalizing of it and saying like this is what i'm feeling mm. and this yeah. is what's happened which is hard enough as it is like without anyone seeing it and then there's explain that to a journalist and then there's publishing it to however many thousands of people read morning chalk up and that is an incredibly vulnerability a vulnerable thing to do you could have at any point said actually i'm not happy to to go ahead with mm. this why mm. did you and i certainly had those happen? thoughts yeah. i certainly had those thoughts but um, I'm a, like I'm a like I love mental health. I love uh, so I'm currently working away at a psychology degree and a counselling diploma and a philosophy degree, which is philosophy and psychology together. But um, all of that's great because it, like I have a fascination with human beings and our minds and how we work and how our minds can be our best friend or our worst enemy. Because I've certainly experienced both ends of that spectrum with my mental health being in absolute chaos. And then also using my mental fortitude to push myself as a professional athlete. So I've experienced both sides of the coin and that to me, seeing the power of the mind, experiencing the power of the mind firsthand makes me so interested in it. So what I kind of have and what I teach, I guess, when I talk about mental health in the broadest sense of the word is like four pillars of mental health. And the first pillar of mental health is self-awareness. So self-awareness to me is kind of the thing that most people suck at and underpins all kind of mental growth and effort in like if you if you're not self-aware and if and self-awareness there's there's levels to that self-awareness you can be aware of your patterns we are all, we're all aware of things that happen to us but how aware are we of the underlying causes in our behavior and all that sort of stuff but the second layer to that the second level to that self-awareness is self-acceptance Right, so I'd go self-awareness to self-acceptance to self-love. Self-love, I'm still working on, but self-acceptance, awareness, and self-acceptance, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty much there. So, 
and how I would define that is self-awareness is just that general awareness of, you know, your story. Like the story that I told, that takes self-awareness to kind of unpack that and that's something that I've been aware of for a long time. Now, big step on that self-acceptance side of things is then sharing it. That's where that vulnerability comes into play. That's where being, you know, I see vulnerability as like, well, I don't know, like I, I, there's something about the word that I love and there's something that I hate because I don't feel like in expressing my story, expressing things that are just facts about my life, there is vulnerability that is that goes into that or perhaps that language I believe to be somewhat damaging to people who haven't yet spoken out about it because you're saying that for them to speak about what is being vulnerable means showing weakness. Are you showing weakness if you're accepting and verbalizing your story? I understand why people use that language, but it's something that, and by all, I don't by any means of the word have like the perfect solution to this, but it is something that I'm conscious of. And it's something I'm conscious of when I, when people say you're so brave for doing that, or when people say you're so, it, it takes courage to do that. It does, but it shouldn't. So we need to be careful in our messaging, I think, about how we, how we speak about being vulnerable, if that makes sense, and even, even the word vulnerable. So that's it, though. But so expressing that and using that platform and making myself feel uncomfortable and doing that, you know, it was a huge step for me in that self-acceptance because it was like, you know what? I'm so at peace with this having happened to me and this just being my story and my story being, you know, I can't change it. Uh, the sooner I embrace it, was it Jung and the shadow work and all that sort of stuff? As soon as I can embrace the darker sides of my my journey, then the sooner I can actually start to learn to love myself in spite of it. And like I said, that's that third layer to that that self love, and I'm still working on that, chipping away at it day mm. by day. But yeah, I I feel like being able to share like that is a huge step in that right direction. Yeah, there's that Jungian line of like if if some I'm gonna absolute trash it but the idea that a tree's branches can only reach into heaven if it's if it's uh roots reach into hell and you've got mm. to be able to really truly accept and see that um that those depths of yourself if you're ever going to grow in the way that you want um mm. i really enjoyed your use and the analysis of the word, of, of vulnerability and the, yeah. that concept it just shows the power of language again like mm. I'm around that word all day, every day, and mm -hmm. I'm seeing it and hearing it. And for me, it's taken on my specific meaning to it. Yeah. And for you, it'll be different. And for everyone listening, it'll be different. Um, so yeah, it's, it's super important to, to analyze that and to, to kind of define it more neatly. Yeah, I think so. Like define it more neatly or more loosely because I feel yeah. like sometimes hard definitions can be what turn people off that sort of yeah. thing. Yeah. You tell someone you're going to need to be really vulnerable and if they if vulnerability is, is hard defined as showing weakness, then that person's going to shy away from that mm. because no one wants to really show weakness. Even if we can understand, even if we have that kind of or some awareness of the fact that by showing weakness, it actually is strengthening in a certain mm. aspect. Like... Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's always been something that, like I said, I haven't really, I haven't done enough work to be able to figure out and propose a solution because I really like to think through problems before I bring them up. I don't like to just be like, ah, this is a problem and, you know, stop your foot and go, I'm very, I like to have kind of nutted out like maybe yeah. some sort of solution. And it's something that, yeah, I don't necessarily know if it's completely right, if I'm on the right track with it, but it's always been something that's bugged me. And that's, that is, yeah, is, is the language around 
speaking about problems and that's because of yeah because that that idea that it takes courage but should it take courage and if if in a world where we just spoke about that in a world where I had a conversation today with someone who was talking about wanting to go and get help see a therapist and I was like cool go do it you would say this on everybody podcast um you know you go to a gym and you sign up for a new gym, you start training or you, you start, you know, a new program. You tell people what you're doing. What, are you try- like, what program are you following? And if you're following a program, you'll tell them what that program is. That program has a coach who writes it. You're entrusting that person to try and improve your physical health to some degree. There's no difference between going to a therapist, someone that's trained, you know, someone can become a CrossFit coach and sell you a program after two days of a course. Right? You can go into a two-day weekend course and coach you on your physical health. A psychologist, they've been to school for six years, six years of university study, practical work after that, ongoing study they have to do, trusting them to look after your mental health in that broad sense as well. I mean, like, first of all, it should be a no-brainer, which is a more worthwhile investment, which is a smarter investment. But like, you know, and that's not to under that's not to undermine the value and the impact that a good coach can have. There are some incredible coaches within the CrossFit space and just the general fitness space that do do that well, but it shouldn't be any difference in speaking to a therapist and working on your mental health and doing it proactively. So before you actually become mentally unwell, the same way we seek a coach or a trainer or some sort of exercise professional to guide us on our journey with fitness. Yeah. It's incredible how shut off to that we've, we've become um Mm. to our to our mental emotional state and it seems to have been this journey through a very kind of religious experience so very um categorizing our life through our mental emotional state and it's it's um yeah it's subjective experience to a purely scientific perspective whereas like now we just we try and take as many of our emotions out of it and view things objectively as possible and now Mm. we seem to be meshing the two worlds together it's this like I think that there almost seems to be hopefully a unifying uh, unification of this, like where we're we're now finding that middle ground. We're now kind of seeing it. Um, Why do you think that we've pulled away from that subjective experience? Why do you think that it is now not the done thing to look for this? Fuck. Why have we pulled away from subjective experience? I mean, that's a rabbit hole. I'd love to crawl down and talk about what I will say. Fuck. I had a point before that, but now it's got really excited. Why we pulled away from it. I think it's a variety of different reasons. I think first of all, our subjective experience is so uh, like watered down by the objective experiences or the subjective experiences of other people that were shown day in and day out. Every time, you know, you look at kind of from a psychological perspective, how many people are supposed to know? Is it 150, 250, yeah, whatever that is? numbers around there. Yeah. number? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's how many people we're supposed to know. I follow 1,500 people on Instagram. I don't know 1,500 people. Well, I don't know personally 1,500 people. But at any given moment, I can go and look at a curated series of, of images and videos that tell me a story about that person's life. Well, tell me the story about that person's life that that person wants to put forward. Now, when they do that, I'm seeing the world through their lens. Well, no, what I'm doing when I see that is there's those stories that they're showing me. There's gaps in those stories that complete the entirety of that person. Now, and this is, again, my own theory. Uh, I don't know how much weight there is to it, but I believe that technology has evolved too fast for our brains to keep up. 
So we were supposed to know these 150, 250, whatever the bloody hell it is, people. And they, those people all had a clearly defined role in our life in this small collective society that we were a part of as we evolved. And so it was very clear what each person did, what their role was and how we related to that person. Now, when we're sort of seeing thousands of people potentially and the best of those thousands of people, the, what they want to put forward, we don't really know how to process that. We don't really know how to make sense of these, these fragments of stories that these people show us. But our brain's trying to because that's what it's designed to do. We need those people to fit into a category for us. We need that category to be conducive to our continue, like, continued striving for our own goals and what sort of thing. So we fill the gaps. And when we fill those gaps, we fill the gaps of these other people's subjective experiences with our own subjective experiences. But over time, the more of these people we start to see and the algorithms on these apps are so good that what they'll do is they'll start showing us the same shit. So we're going to see the same thing over and over again. And these values and these beliefs, they're going to, of these other people, they're going to start to be very heavily reinforced for us. And we're going to start to mesh them with our own values and beliefs. And that's where that whole idea of maybe diluting subject, the value of subjective experience, I think that plays a huge role in it. You add on top of that media, like traditional media outlets pushing their own agendas, Hollywood, all these sorts of uh, different things. Like the narratives we're told about life and living are so conflicting with how life actually is that how the hell are we supposed to how the hell are we supposed to trust our subjective experiences when we have no idea what they're going on and then that's what comes back to that self-awareness like are you practicing genuine self-awareness how much how aware are you of your actual thoughts feelings and beliefs values and how much are you living in accordance with those and that to me is is what typifies self-love that third level is you're actually you're aware of your values your goals your desires and you're living in accordance with them and pursuing them irrespective of other people's opinions around them like that to me that epitomizes self-love like that is that is self-love in a nutshell it's not bubble baths and you know sex toys it's that and that's where i'm like that's where i feel like this this our subjective experience now well, fuck, how subjective is it? How, how much is it our own versus societies versus these random strangers on the internet that we just what, like we voyeuristically kind of watch their lives? So yeah, it's fucking hard, man. Like how, how, how do we strip that back? How do we get rid of that? Well, I don't think we can. Fucking social media is here to yeah. stay. Yeah. And especially with that kind of that feedback loop of, of dopamine and that just pops up every time. So, like, okay, right. I'm, I'm seeing mm. that screen. I'm mm. pressing, I'm double tapping. I'm going through that repetitive motion that mm. mimics picking berries and all that kind of stuff. It's just like, I'm, I'm going through that scroll every single day. And that combined with the, the social, the size of our new social network that doesn't really exist. It's, yeah. it's, yeah, it's no, there's no wonder that it affects people the way it does and no wonder that it's as challenging as it is. So yeah. I, I definitely think that there's a, an intensification of what, what we've been struggling with in this subjective world through social media. And it's exaggerated mm. by that. Obviously we have to look back as well and think about what created our values or created our, our habits and created our psychology as, as mm. kids I know you mentioned that kind of self-esteem movement that was around um, mm. when you were growing up. Do you mind explaining 
what your opinions around that are and like actually let's start off with how did that affect like how did that play out a role in your life like the self-esteem movement and positivity so i think like it's really important for me to preface this kind of conversation with the fact that i have an incredible relationship with my parents i feel like I meet so many people and they, you know, you hear their stories and you hear other people's relationships with their parents and they're terrifying. And for me, like I love both my parents. I still have a very close relationship with my parents, but what I share with my mother is uh, anxiety. And as a part of that, I, I was their first, I was the firstborn. And I believe that for mom, it was probably important to make sure that like I was like, I had good self, like that was the kind of the, that empowerment movement of, the sort of late 80s, early 90s was all about basically that was when your participation was important. And I mean, I don't, I'm not so involved in the school systems now, so what it was, but it was kind of like, you know, on the cusp of turning towards that. So you had some people that were very much kind of like, you know, just like you got to work hard and all this stuff. And other ones like, no, you're amazing. No matter what you did was always like perfect, this, 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 and this. So my mum fell into that category. It was always now a really interesting thing that I've come to realize through doing some like meditation and journaling, some deep work recently is that I always looked at this as mum trying to trick me and that she was trying to be like, you know, just telling me all these things were amazing. I was smart, talented, handsome, achiever, blah, 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 blah. And I used to, and what that was contrasted by the way that I was treated by other kids. And that was that I was an outcast. I was a nerd. I was chubby. I was bullied. I was picked on. I was not, the, I was not part of the, the cool group and I struggled really hard to fit in. So I was kind of getting these mixed messages. So mum telling me you're amazing, you know, you're this, this, this. And then my peers being like, fuck, you're a weirdo. We hate you. You're fat. You're a piece of shit, whatever. So trying to reconcile where I actually fit. And I mean, that's that kind of, and that's, you know, those formative first seven to nine years or whatever, that to me just kind of had this bizarre effect where I don't trust people that I believe love me and care about me because I feel like with that, and I'm working on this massively, I feel like with that, as soon as someone loves you and cares about you, they're just going to tell you what they think you want to hear because they want you to be happy and therefore and then the flip side of that was then seeking so much validation from from other people that I don't really know or care about so it was it created this bizarre almost like flip in my value structures where I valued the opinion of complete strangers about me more so than the opinions of the people that I loved and cared about because being brought up in that kind of self-empowerment and or that empowerment self-esteem movement and having it so heavily drilled into me that I was amazing. I was this, I was this, I was that. But then going in my lived experience, not being matched with that, that had a profound effect on the way that I saw myself and the way that I saw different figures in my life, loved ones, close friends versus people I don't know, people that don't actually care about me or whatever it is. And so yeah, that kind of that kind of affected me. Now, what I've kind of come to realize in some recent work I've been doing is that mum was probably not just saying that. She genuinely felt it. And it was an interesting conversation I had with another mother that was like, you know, when you have a kid, you'll understand. Like, you just think that about your kid. And it wouldn't have been necessarily like, uh, well, I've got to make him feel good because he's not good. It probably did stem from a genuine place. And it's something that I'd never thought of and gave me a whole new lens to view that through. 
Um, but yeah, that that kind of was my experience with it. Now, do I know what the perfect balance? But I, if I had a kid right now, would I be able to say, yep, yeah, with hand on heart, I'm going to make that kid so emotionally stable and fine and mentally well? Fuck no, I don't know how to be a parent. Like, I don't think anyone really knows. I think it's all guesswork. That's just life in general. Does anyone really know what we're fucking doing here? No, anyone tries to tell you they do. It's full of shit. And all they're just trying to deceive themselves. But yeah, I, I don't know how that self-esteem movement should be taught because clearly it is important for kids to have self-esteem and to have a clear sense of self and to feel good about themselves. We all need to feel good about ourselves. It's how we keep going day in and day out because life's fucking hard. It is fucking hard and it can be really fun as well. Sure. But you know, how do we, how do we pull ourselves out of those shit moments where we have to know that we're capable of having the good ones? Yeah, so so it's what, important, but I don't know how to do it. No, of course. Like, and yeah, like you said, very few people do uh, really have the idea. What I found so interesting there is that these two stories that you're being told, one of them was you're great. You don't need to change. You're perfect as you are almost. And there's another side that was, you're never going to be good enough and mm. you, you won't be good. Somewhere in the middle, like you said, there's a truth, but you in, in kind of observation of your mother's story, were thinking, well, I see that that is untrue to a level like your internal bullshit detector went oh okay like there's there's like there's part of that that's not true because otherwise i wouldn't be feeling this way and like i'm not mm. perfect and at a very deep level there's probably a part going well i know i can always improve i know that there's a, a chance for growth there's a chance to become better there's a chance mm. to um to take a step towards my potential um and it's like Somewhere in the middle, there is an optimal balance, and it seems to me to be what's the most truthful. But defining mm. the truth is such a difficult thing to do. See it, man. Who's truth? Like, because yeah. your subjective truth? experience truth? is true, and my subjective yeah. experience is true, and the objective world is true as well. Yeah, exactly right. It's like the whole idea, and I've always been so fascinated about this. It's like who creates your identity you or the world around other people around you now the obvious answer and the the obvious answer that most people would want to say is well clearly you like you're responsible for who you are it only matters but it's not exactly true because humans are social creatures by design we exist in a social social world so there has to be a degree of how others perceive you that is important that whole idea of oh you shouldn't care what other people think i think I think that's a flawed maxim. I think that there yeah, should be. Because you, you do. Should, yeah, you do. If you want to actually exist and function in society, you do need to care what other people think about you. Maybe not as many people as most of us care about. Certainly in the past, I should, I've cared more about people's opinions that I shouldn't have, but I shouldn't just be going out there and disregarding every single person in my life's opinions of me because I care about some of those people and I want to preserve relationships. That said, though, I'm like someone that's battled massively with people-pleasing because of that whole thing, me thinking I needed to make everyone like me. Well, because I didn't have people like me, I thought it was was a task to make people like you because it was so difficult for me as Mm. a kid. I thought it was so difficult for me as a kid. So I've always been a people-pleaser. And as part of that, like I said, I've then had this weird imbalance of caring more what people I don't really know nor nor care about me think than the people that I actually do care about or that do care about me because I value their opinion as closer to the truth because of that past experience and so as part of that I look now I've had some 
crazy cool experiences recently that have really allowed me to start unpacking some of this stuff a lot deeper. Um, uh, one was the Bufo thing that I did in Mexico and that's fucking incredible. Um, we can talk about that. It's a really, really cool yeah, conversation. But um, yeah, part of that whole, uh, like that kind of new viewing these things through this new lens is like really realizing just how much power I gave these people's opinions over me that I don't fucking care that well, maybe I care about them, but they don't care about me or like why? Or like some of them, I look at their lives and I'm like, man, why the fuck would I be taking advice yeah. from this person? So like, that's I the don't key indicator like there. Person. It's like, if yeah. they, if they are holding, if they're an example of an ideal that you care about, then probably a good mm. idea to care about their opinion to a degree. But if yeah. they don't live a life where you're like, I want that fucking life. Like that is yeah. who I want to be. Then that's yeah. the, that's the litmus test right there. It's like, no, yeah, that, exactly. that's, I'm going to disregard that easier said than done. Yeah, oh, exactly. Right. Easier said than done, particularly when people try to be very vocal in their opinions but you know that's that other idea of like one thing that I do, that I do think rings true uh one of those kind of little sayings that I do like is you know what someone thinks of you says more about them than it does of you sort of the less well particularly the less that person knows you so someone let's say for example someone who I've never met before that formulates an opinion on me based on what they see of me on social media that person's opinion used to have used to would hold huge sway over me and i'd be like oh my god or you know like fuck why don't they like me like you know what am i what am i saying wrong what am i doing wrong and then you realize that like they are literally interpreting me through the lens that best suits their world the lens that best suits them they don't know you if someone the less someone knows you the less their opinion of you should have any fucking influence on the way that you think or feel about yourself and even if someone does know you, the less they care about you, and it's pretty fucking obvious, the less they stand to gain from you, um, the more they stand to gain from your doing worse, like, you know, the less you should care about what they say. And and that's been a big learning curve for me, really letting go of the opinions of some of these people that I'm just like, what the fuck am I listening to this person for? Yeah. Yeah, it's a real tough one because you have that, that side of it where it's okay yeah i i, I want to dismiss those opinions but also people can see things that you can't and mm. because you have your own viewpoint and you mm -hmm. naturally have those blind spots so sometimes there's truth and if it's overwhelming mm. and if it's like oh there's nothing but this opinion coming at me mm. then chances are we need to look at ourselves and figure out what we're doing wrong or what we could be mm. doing better um and again balancing those viewpoints like finding the middle ground between the two where you mm. are self-trusting where you believe that hey you know what like this is what i'm doing is valuable i have value and also the mm. opinions of others have value when when they are truthfully expressed from a good place um yeah and, and i think that's just and that just comes down to finding your people and that's where like it's almost what i sort of i guess like the two things i said are kind of contradictory in a sense that i was like yeah you know we have to care what other people think because we are social creatures but also don't care about what certain people think mm -hmm. so that kind of comes out it comes across as kind of contradictory but what i mean by that and the essence of that is kind of exactly what you said you need to take on board feedback from people absolutely but you've got to be very selective in who those people are Right, having people that you can trust and that you know will give it to you straight, you know you will tell the truth. I think I'm extremely lucky that I have some close friends that I know that no matter what, I can always turn to and I know they're going to give it to me straight as it is 
that there. I have some other extremely close friends that I know are going to sugarcoat it and tiptoe around it. So I don't seek advice from them, even though they're my close friends, I don't necessarily reach out to them to speak about, hey, uh, should I do this? Should I do that? Like to get an opinion on sort of bits and pieces like that, because I know that they're going to sugarcoat it. Certainly, I'm not going to go and ask just random strangers or people in my life that I don't who, like I said, whose opinions I don't feel I should value as much as I have in the past. But yeah, you do need to have your people that'll fucking pull you up. And I'm very lucky that I have those people because, yeah, like I, I think it's really important. You need them and you need them. And people in in some respects like that, I guess what I wanted to, what the point of that was, was to say that whilst it may seem like I was saying initially, you know, you've got to care what other people think. And then I was like, actually, no, don't give a fuck about anyone. No, you do need to care what people think and they need to be like specific people, right? Mm. So you do need to, you need to value the opinions of the right people. If you enjoy training your mind through podcasts like this, you're also going to enjoy our free newsletter. It's called Quad Shot of Brain Gains. Every week, I'll be sharing four things you can start doing this week to train your mind. I'll always share something you can try in the gym, something you can try in wildlife, and a few other perspective shifters to boot. It's also where you'll get priority access to any deals we have or new products like our brand new Mindset Upgrade course. Hint, hint. You can sign up for free at MindsetRx.com. That's MindsetRxd.com. Now, let's get back on with the show. I found your point interesting around people who sugarcoat the truth. Because mm. it feels like we're doing people a kindness to say, oh, mm. I'm going to protect you. I, I, I want to stop you from hurting. I want to stop mm. you. From, and we do this to ourselves the whole time. Like this is this is my MO for like for, for my shit that I, I struggled mm. with um, or used to struggle with a lot more than I do now. And that was like burying my head in the sand. When shit was like, when shit was going down and it was not in a good place, I would sugarcoat things. I'd bury my head in the sand. I would like ignore it. And that's what other people can do to us as well. Because it feels like it's, like I feel like I need a pat on the back. I feel like I need a like a like you're going to be good enough, and that's back to the old story. But also, like if we truly love someone and love ourselves, we'll show them the truth and we'll objectively try to objectively see it and try to, um, mm. yeah, like try to get at the absolute truth because that can't be argued with, and that helps mm. us operate within the world. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, hundred percent. I think I listened to an interesting podcast where they were talking about the value of truth, and it was very like a philosophical kind of discussion on well, what is truth? Does truth exist? What are theories of truth? Whatever. And there's that kind of bizarre argument where you're like, well, all truth is relative, but it's not. We have there are things that are closer to being factually correct, and it should be our imperative to seek them out. That was kind of the consensus from everyone on this podcast. I really liked that because I think. Yeah, it can be easy to be like, well, it's subjective and, you know, subjective experience, like subjective truths, blah, blah, blah. But I think we still have an imperative to find our way as close as possible to an objective truth, even if none of them do exist. Yeah. Yeah, that makes complete sense. It's find your own truth or find what you can see as truth. And and if that matches mm. up with other people's truth, then you've probably mm. found something that's, that's yeah. worthwhile. So actually let's let's go for this when was the first time you can remember you thought hey i feel different to other people that's probably my life 
it's weird. So I spoke about this in that article. And I was like, I just, I don't know. Like the details are so blurry, but it's like one of my earliest memories. And it was, I remember going to preschool one day and everyone was sitting in like a circle. And I think it's something to do with wearing a, a costume or like dressing in a weird. I still loved dressing up when I was a kid. And mum and dad were in theatre. They were super creative. It was like, yeah, okay, if you want to, you know, if you want to dress up today and go to school in a costume, you dress up and you go in a costume. You want to wear a dress, like, because that you think they look cool, go wear a dress. Like my very progressive parents. And again, one of the reasons I'm so thankful that I did have the parents I do is because how open-minded I guess I am now. But um. Yeah, it was something along those lines. And I remember turning up and I remember thinking in my head before I went down there, like, oh, this is so great. Like it was a great outfit or a great costume or whatever it was. And thinking that in my head and then being it being so ridiculed and shunned by the other kids that I was just like, oh, you think this is good, but they think everyone else thinks it's bad. What's wrong with you? And that was kind of how it went. Like, and it was, and then it was from there on out, I just, it was like hypersensitive to that sort of thing. Like there would be situations and you know, I can now look back with a degree of compassion and understand that, you know, my mental health is what it is. And I had mental challenges that other kids maybe didn't have. Um, and, you know, like there'd be certain, like, so the other thing, you know, at my, at my household, it was fine. You were allowed to cry. If you were upset, you expressed your emotions and you, you cried and it was okay for boys to cry and you were allowed to be feminine if you wanted to be feminine as a guy, you know, it was, we had my, my godparents were gay and mum's best friends, like had a lot of gay friends that came around. So we were exposed to that kind of like LGBTQI culture, theatre, production culture and growing up in a small coastal town, that wasn't the way that the other boys were necessarily raised. It wasn't necessarily what they were told was okay. So these things that now I'm extremely thankful for, so being emotionally aware, being comfortable expressing my emotions and all that sort of stuff was very heavily frowned upon. And I even I remember female teachers saying things to me about like, um, like there's like little instances like where um, like just random things where I know, knew that I felt emotional and I was told that that was wrong or that, the other thing is like, so I have OCD and as part of OCD, you just have intrusive thoughts and you have these intrusive thoughts that lead to compulsions. And I had some whoppers when I was a kid and no one fucking knows. OCD, everyone thinks is you just organize shit. It's one of the most misunderstood mental health things there is. They don't understand the intrusive thoughts side of it. They don't understand how perverse and bad those intrusive thoughts can be. And when you have those intrusive thoughts consistently, even when they're not true, you start to kind of think that there's something wrong with you. So I remember like you'd, you'd be told something was wrong or like youth group was a big thing back when I was young. You'd go to like church youth group and then that was kind of the cool thing to do. It was just what everyone did. And then like you'd be told all these things were wrong and then you'd, I'd think in my head as soon as I was told something wrong, I'd be like fixated on it. I'd get these intrusive thoughts constantly about you probably want to do that. What if people think you're going to want to do that? You might want to do that. What if one day you want to do that? What if you like, what if everyone else thinks you want to do that? And these thoughts, fuck, they can get really bad. So the more anxious I am, the worse my OCD is and the worse these intrusive thoughts become. And then like, I'd get certain compulsions around them. So things like uh, I, I knew when I had shoes on, if I couldn't cross my big toe over my next toe, all I would think about was the fact that I couldn't cross my toes. When I couldn't, when I would do that, I would get so anxious and so wound up. I'd have like an anxiety attack and I'd 
you know, if I couldn't cross my toes, well, then I'd have to be able to shake my legs. If I couldn't shake and straighten them, if I couldn't straighten the joint, so if I, my movement was restricted, all I would think about was that restricted movement. And it would to the point where I would be like so fixated on it that I would drive, literally drive myself insane. Now I'm a kid thinking all these things. And every now and again, I'd branch out. Like there, were way, there was a weird way that I had to wear like two pairs of undies under my pajamas to because otherwise I would think about like certain amounts of pressure being on like my groin area. Now, these were all weird things. Like I was aware that I was like, maybe just everyone has stuff like this. Maybe everyone does weird stuff like this. And then I dipped the toe in the water and I'd kind of be like, hey, do you have to cross your toes in your shoes? And kids are like, what the fuck? I'm like, oh, fuck, yeah, no, you are weird. There's something wrong with you. Like you're something not right about your head. They'd be like, oh, do you ever, you know, have to do this with your undies to go to sleep? And they'd be like, no, what the fuck? I'm like, oh, no worries. Don't mind me. And then, yeah, then those, those you know, those intrusive thoughts, the strength and like the strength and intensity of them just gets worse when you get older. And as much as I said, my anxiety is worse, they get worse. And they can be a bit of a shit storm. It can be a bit of a nightmare, but yeah, I, I had that awareness and it was exacerbated in part by the way that, you know, some of the other kids at school in my earlier years uh, treated me sure. But it was also just, I guess my own self-awareness of the fact that I had these weird thoughts and feelings that no one else did and that therefore that was something wrong with me. There's, there's a few things that I think British and Aussie culture share. And one mm. of those things is that kind of blokey, like, don't like, don't see this side of you kind of like, almost, I want to say stiff up a lip, but like, don't admit to weakness don't mm. don't show anything any different like fit in at all costs make sure you're kind of yeah. uniform in this and you're better to be part of the status quo than try to stand out that kind of tall poppy syndrome where it's like why are you trying to be different don't yeah. try to be different and i was like well fuck to an extent i'm not trying to be different i just fucking am like yeah. i don't want to be different i want to fit in i want to be just accepted mm. yeah. yeah and that's a challenge how did that progress as you went from like primary school into secondary school like where where did you go with that um well it's heavily influenced the way that i saw myself certainly and i definitely like, i wanted to be liked and I, I was conscious of how other people saw me and other people's opinions and i mean fuck that's something i carried into adulthood but it was kind of like i went i got i went to a selective high school so you had to see the test to get in and i was the only person from my primary school that got in and I was so fucking happy about that because I mean, and not, not to say I had some, I had some great friends from primary school, so people that I still even am in contact with occasionally now. I think they're just some of the most wonderful people uh, that I did meet there. So it wasn't just like I was this complete outcast. And but I loved the fact that I had this fresh start, and that's what I saw it as. I was like, cool, you weren't cool there. Now's your opportunity to maybe do that. And so being a selective school, the people that were there was like not myself but some of the other people there were like borderline geniuses i wasn't and so i gravitated more towards sport so i was like well i'm not gonna ever sort of fit in as one of the academic kids but you know i love sport my dad loves sport i was made to play a sport um from the time you know as soon as me and my brothers were old enough to we had to play a summer and a winter sport i loved my rugby absolutely loved my rugby um so that was yeah, that was a big, big part. And dad loves his rugby too. So that was, you know, I was playing footy. I was 
reasonably like okay at it. So I really just dove headfirst into sport. And as part of that, as I started to mature, um, yeah, like I lost that puppy fat that I had as a younger kid. I started to get in shape because I was just playing so much sports, swimming, it's like surfing, rugby, surf life-saving, I'd run, I'd, I'd do like weights because of the scene that like help you out. We bought like this old shitty garage gym set, which I believe my family still have, which is kind of fucking cool. Uh, that's really cool actually. Um, yeah, like so, and, and I would do that sort of stuff. Like I was interested in like making myself and then – almost on a dime like one day it was as if like I didn't exist well I existed and like people I had friends I had, I had friends I certainly wasn't an outcast I certainly wasn't I knew I was still weird and still different and certainly was also still told that but it was never in a detriment it was never in like a bullying way it was just kind of like a fuck you're so weird like almost an endearing way and it was cool like I, I was still mentally obviously fucking having the same issues and the fucking cross my toes and my feet still had to you know at this point in time now my sleep was starting to get bad I had all these weird sleep rituals and a lot of my OCD would center around intrusive thoughts when I would be trying to relax so in my head if I thought that I was in a scenario where I should try and relax I'd go fucking insane and one of them would be like I'd convince myself I had to go to the toilet so like I'd get up and go to try and pee like 40 times before I'd fall asleep type thing 42 is my record that I count. 42 or 48 is the record that I once counted to. Just kept convincing myself in my head, look, can't relax yet. You might have to pee. You go to the bathroom and nothing would happen. Come back, whatever it was. And so, like, I still was aware of all that, but it was like, it was okay. Like, I wasn't, I wasn't like this outcast anymore. I said, friends. And then all of a sudden, one day, it even flipped in the other direction where, like, suddenly, like, I was, I got started getting attention from girls. And that was one thing that I never really had. And particularly that I was like wanted because it seemed to be like boys like girls and the girls liked you back if you were one of the cool kids. And there was this sort of sign of something that I never had when I was younger. And it was to me this kind of sign or status symbol that I'd always wanted because I felt like it was the missing piece in the puzzle of me fitting in. Girls liked me now. And like overnight one day it happened and I was like, well, what the fuck? Like, there was like a year, like, I'd sort of like, I think, you know what it was? I think it was like my neighbor had like a MySpace or something like that. And she like posted a photo of me and then she messaged me and she's like, you should see my MySpace. All my friends are going crazy. Like all these people were leaving really positive comments. And then like that same year, our year 10 formal, there was like awards and I won an award for like, being good looking and I was like what the fuck like I've never even considered myself to be attractive to the opposite sex like I was the fat nerd that the girls laughed at you know like that a girl had to get tricked into giving me my first kiss like that kind of thing like like or not tricked but like the other guys convinced because they felt sorry for me if that made sense mm -hmm. like I was that was me like I was that's how I saw myself and then all of a sudden that changed and I was just like well fuck like okay now i have this value to 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 people that i've never had before and then you know just being the way that i am that became a fixation for me the way that i looked um being attractive had an eating disorder which i spoke about in the um uh what's his name in the in the article mm -hmm. and then funnily enough that then flipped when i just started doing crossfit i mean i, I got rid of the eating disorder a while before that but 
when I started doing CrossFit, you know, I had this new thing that I was reasonably good at. Like, and well, the cool thing about CrossFit versus the way that I looked was it was an objective thing. So the good I wasn't. You do a workout, you're successful, you beat the other people. Like there is no subjectivity in that. It's objectively you are better than the other person because you moved faster than them or lifted more. And then, so when I started CrossFit and I was good at it straight away, that was good, but it was also bad because now there was this new thing that I was given value for. And then when How I made old the game, you at this point when, when you started 23, CrossFit? 22, okay. 23. Yeah. 22, 23. But like, look, I was good straight away, like mm. straight away. And yeah, like I said, good and bad because all of a sudden now there was this new thing that I got value for. So, okay, maybe I wasn't, didn't care what I looked like as much anymore. And I like I know for a fact I didn't because I just changed the way I ate. I used to eat. People wouldn't believe this if they heard it now. But I used to eat very strict. You know, I had an eating disorder, and then I was still eating strict to try and stay lean. And then I was like, no, nah, I just cared about how I performed, and that changed everything. My relationship with food. So now it's pretty good. But that became another thing I became attached to because it was how I got. I saw myself as being of value to other people. It's how I fit in. So carrying still that kind of those formative years where I felt like I was different and I didn't fit in, you know, and then there was this thing that I got praised for the way that I looked. And so that became a thing I cared too much about. Now there was this other thing that I was being praised for how good I was at this sport that I liked as well. I fucking loved it. And even like the praise, I felt I deserved the praise because it was an objective. I was objectively being successful at it. I was, I qualified for the games 18 months after starting, you know, I qualified for regionals eight months after starting, qualified for the games 18 months after starting. I, you know, continued to qualify for the games for the next kind of two, three, two, three years until finally I didn't make it in 2017. So I, that was just activated that same sense of that same desire to be accepted that still kicked around from when I was a kid and just made me super duper anxious um about competing and about being an athlete because now all of a sudden this was the thing that i just was like i had i had to keep being an athlete or no one had value and the cool thing about it though was i was like i saw it as it was it was not just how other people saw me it was in my own head i had this thing I carried a lot of shame from having the eating disorder and, and around that because, you know, people would be like, oh, you're in such good shape. And I'd be like, uh -huh, yeah, well, fuck, you want to know what I have to do to get that. But with CrossFit, everything that I did, I was had earned. I didn't, I never cheated, I never cut corners. I never, there was no, there was nothing that I was, I felt nothing but pride about my success in CrossFit because I felt that I'd earned it through my hard work. I'd worked hard and I'd not only had a good outcome, I'd had a great outcome. So that gave me, that made it of such high fucking value to me as well that with that also came a sense of kind of like insanity. Like my training had to be fucking perfect. My training, if I had a bad training day, holy shit, I was like, there's something wrong with me. Oh my God, like you're not, you aren't who you think you are. You don't have this value that you've now, that you feel like you have like this intrinsic value as well which was a new thing for me to feel. And so there, that just brought so much stress and anxiety with it, which drove me mad, which meant that every year I'd finish the games and be like, all right, I quit. I'm never doing this again. It's too hard. And then I just would keep coming back because I still did love it. And then that all kind of, yeah, 
kept going until 2017 when I missed out on the games for the first time. And then that was kind of like a huge turning point for me in so many aspects, but specifically as an athlete where I started to look at what was the mental cost of doing this? Why was I, I felt like, you know, I was going backwards and I was going backwards. Why? And it was You mean because, in terms of fitness or mental state? Both. But yeah, particularly fitness, like my fitness was not getting better. And it was then that I realized just how much my mental health affected my performance and how much of a negative thing training and competing had become. And as a result, that was why I was going backwards. So I had to change my entire relationship to being an athlete, to competing and to all of that sort of stuff moving into 2018. And funnily enough, then my performance started to go back up. Yeah, so there's this equation that's often banded around that performance equals ability minus interference. And that interference was the the kind of the mental state going on. Mm. What did you do to, obviously you, you brought about awareness there. You already had, which is a blessing and a curse, pretty good awareness mm. like of your mm. internal state, which some people find is the first struggle. Um, mm. But like you had that awareness that what were the steps you were taking around that time to start working and training your mental health? Um, so a big thing I decided to do was to branch out what I was doing. So I went back to uni. That's when I started my degree in psychology. Um, I started doing uh, some sort of workshops. I started traveling to places I hadn't been. I started to do things outside of CrossFit that filled my cup. Um, I was in a new relationship. I was really into the girl that I was with. And so that was a big positive as well. So like I had all of these really positive things going on outside of the gym that I was able to anchor myself to. And I was able to see value in pursuing, even though they didn't necessarily have, I mean, I wasn't the top of my class and did fine, but I wasn't, by any stretch of the words, the best at it, but I enjoyed it. So I found value in the process. And so what I really started to do was look at these other areas, you know, my mates, my friendships, traveling when I wasn't doing it for stuff, uh, being able to help people through coaching at workshops and all these sorts of things that I was doing. I started to see value in things that came about that were completely separate from the outcome of making the CrossFit Games going like being on the podium at regionals so i started to apply that same principle to my training i started to train just with a group of guys that were at the gym and i started to look at it as more like how can i have the most fun as part of the process and you know it sounds so cliche how can i focus on the process rather than the outcome would you believe it fucking sometimes cliches are cliches crazy that isn't it yeah um with that shift in approach that allowed me to do it. Now, I also, I also, so in 2015, I was diagnosed, misdiagnosed with bipolar disorder. I also went and got a new diagnosis for my mental health. So I was able to actually speak to a, a new psychiatrist that gave me a new look at what potentially was wrong with my mental health. He was the first one to indicate probably ADHD and then also the anxiety and OCD. Through that, I was able to then start working with different psychologists who were able to help with the kind of finer details of it. But what it was more so was like I started to I started to look at my mental health. Now, I don't pretend like this was when my mental health got better, but I started to work on it and I started to take control of it. 2018, focused really hard on trying to get back to the games, was really in a good, was in a good routine, like all sorts of things. Like I was in routine. I was, 
you know, I was trusting, I was focusing on the process, but I also had goals and I was creating habits around those goals, you know, and for someone that has ADHD, fucking routine is difficult. But if, you, if I can get into it, if I can hyper-focus on my routine, which is kind of the opposite of the scatter focus of ADHD, but part and parcel of the disorder, um, then I would be, like my training would be so good. And like I was focusing on all these other elements, like having fun, my process in the environment. And that's kind of what I teach when I go and do these workshops is I actually help people create their ideal process rather than focusing on the, this is what you should do when you're training. It's like, Hey, this is how you should create your ideal process around training. I draw heavily on personality psychology for that, because I think that, you know, the big five factor personality is just the gold standard in how you figure out the shit you should be doing and shouldn't be doing. Um, and yeah, because that was so fundamental for me, that refocusing my attention on my process rather than the outcome and actually what I was doing in training had a huge profound effect. Now I made it back to the games, had my best year ever or up to date in 2018. And then I kind of just went a bit off the rails again. Just fucking, it was almost as if I was like, cool, I did the thing I wanted to do. Now I don't have to care anymore. And so then I let my mental health slip again. And it wasn't until 2019 that I really, really made it top priority to focus on my mental health. And it's been kind of a two and a half year journey since then. But, and it's not a journey that's complete by any fucking stretch of the word. In fact, my mental health has been rubbish the last kind of 10 days to two weeks. Worse, it's been in ages. Not because I've been doing anything particularly to exacerbate it. I just have a lot of stuff going on in my life at the moment. and that has been wreaking havoc on it and you know traveling is fun but it's also very chaotic and spending if you're a chaotic person like i am spending a long time in a chaotic environment can be isn't conducive to mental stability Mm. but um but yeah man like that was such a big thing for me because it shifted my focus to my mental health 2017 and to creating a broader and more malleable identity around myself, to redefining my values or to starting to even fucking, I mean, like to be honest, values weren't even something I started to look at until maybe 2019, 2020, starting to, or 2019, really starting to figure out what my values were, really starting to figure out what were my values versus what were, what do other people, like what do I want versus what do other people want from me? And that's a big one kind of spoke about before in that idea of, you know, Mm you know, your authentic self and your subjective reality versus the influence of others' subjective realities. And again, something that I've really worked on hard while I've been away is really, really owning out exactly what those values look like. And it's an ongoing process, but I think that was something that started in 2017 when I started to see value in things other than just being an athlete. Yeah. So there's so much that I want to pull out from that. There's so many points you brought up. I thought they were great. Um, there's it seemed to be a point where you stop pursuing this kind of fitting in and stop pursuing what you kind of assumed that other people wanted to um wanted from you and began pursuing what you uniquely found meaningful for example um studying and psychology and philosophy i think that was interesting you started being more um individual in your approach to training by the sounds of it too and started working with what was a kind of a natural proclivity rather than against it and it seemed like one of the things that i think helps people is instead of pursuing what other people or pursuing the path that other people have laid down as what worked for them 
keeping the same goal, working towards the same thing, but working with yourself as opposed to Mm. against yourself. And it's, it's fascinating how you did that. And you kind of, you began seeing the results and you had that, that year of nailing it at the games, your best performance. Yeah. Like you, that coincided with, with the other, um, the two things coincided, sorry. When you began working on your mental health and you said you actually began like actively pursuing better, what methods were you using there? Was it like journaling, so meditation? Oh like, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Seeing it, like obviously seeing a psychologist, seeing a therapist, yeah. which is the number one thing. Like we sort of, Let's see that that's your that's your mental health coach right there. Um, I've always gravitated towards journaling and towards writing. For me, that is the ultimate form of therapy. Uh, sometimes prompted, but most of the time not. And it's basically just like for me, writing is an emotional purge and becoming aware that that was the case. Like I started doing it before I even thought. When I was a kid, I'd get home from school and I was sitting in the computer and I'd write. And I'd write these stories in which I wasn't a loser and I wasn't the outcast or this sort of stuff. And what I realized now was that was that was my emotional purging and that was me trying to get these feelings out that were so frustrating for this young kid that that's what, what I do. So, and I used, to, I used to write when I was really going through some really rough stuff mentally in like 2015, I would always just turn to writing about it and yeah, I mean, you look at what journaling does now. There's all that kind of these amazing kind of journaling courses and everyone talks about it. And it's like the thing that I loved about journaling was for me, when my mental health is bad, when my anxiety is really bad, it's and combined with the ADD and particularly with the OCD as well. Like OCD is an intrusive thought that just keeps going around and around and around and the anxiety tickles it and builds it and it kind of expands. So a lot of the time... I was like, fuck, these thoughts to be in my head. And I was like, the only way for me to make sense of them was to give them some sort of kind of structure and cohesion. And I do that by writing them out. It also give them a separateness from me. So it was like, cool, now I have this, this thing in my head is now here. So maybe it was something that I was really worried about. So I put that thing that I was really worried about out there into the world. And then I'd have it, it would be out there. So I don't need to stress about this anymore because I don't need to think about it now because I won't forget it because it's written down there and I can go back and read it and maybe it'll make sense when I'm not feeling like this. And then, so yeah, so journaling is something that I do and I do it ad hoc. I do it structured. Um, Like I said, haven't been in a great routine here, but I'll try to do it mornings and evenings. Just like a little recap of the day is a big one for me, like to look at what was good, what was bad, what wasn't. Meditation as well, massively, like with a lot of things for myself, I started meditation, felt like I was like, I'm going to do it for 30 days in a row, did the Headspace app, did the 30 days in a row, had such a profound experience from it where I was like, fuck, this is amazing. I went and signed up for a meditation teacher's course and did all that sort of shit as well, which is just so fucking typical me. I finished it. It was like a little online course for, I don't know, like the very, very basics of meditation. But like, yeah, I enjoyed it. I tried and breath work as well. So for me, doing breath work, becoming a better breather just in general. So like breathing, breathing into the belly and all this sort of stuff, that's a big one too. Um, And then lastly as well, is play so it's cliche because it's the name i've always kind of associated myself the brand of play but i feel like i started to set aside time for doing things that were either just for me and just for the pleasure of that activity 
So there was no, I can get very kind of hyper-focused on goals and being like everything I do has to be productive. You know, I have to wake up and have a podcast in straight away. And if I'm not, if I'm at breakfast, I should be reading or listening to something. Like you never, like you don't just eat and have downtime. It's like you always need to be doing something that's productive. Setting aside time to actually be unproductive and just have fun was a big one too. And that's kind of something as well. Like, so like in a nutshell, like I look at emotional regulation being kind of looking after your mental health and there's like five things and that's move, breathe, think, uh, move, breathe, think, um, reflect and play. So like, like I move, obviously training and stuff like that, but breathing, just getting better at breathing and getting better at deep breathing because particularly I used to have a lot of issues with my anxiety and stuff about feeling like I had to swallow air. And even as a kid, I'd ask mom, I'd be like, why sometimes can I not actually get air to like swallow the air or it doesn't get into me? And it was just like, like, that's weird. You don't need to do that. I was like, fuck another thing. Damn it. Um, But like getting better at breathing and getting better at being more aware of my breath and then like thinking so doing stuff that's mentally stimulating like i'd need to be mentally stimulated or i'll go absolutely fucking bonkers but then there's that's the balance of play where i'm like i also need to set aside downtime where it's like you're just gonna have fun now or i'll lose my mind um and yeah man and then yeah and 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 reflecting just like spending time journaling looking back on it spending time meditating and just thinking did crossfit feel like play when you first started 100% 100% and then yeah. it changed 100% it became exactly a job right. right it becomes like yep. a thing that I have to do a task that I have to complete yep and there was that was what I mean there was a, there was an outcome there was an outcome attached to it that if that outcome wasn't being met took away the enjoyment of it and mm. that was the worst thing that happened to me with it yeah you know it doesn't happen anymore I fucking love it now it's so funny that that happens well not even funny <laughs> funny is probably the wrong word it's it's interesting that it happens no matter what the level of of athlete like we've we work with so many athletes that are kind of at this level where they're competing at regionals or what whatever whatever's happened semis quarters and like they find this they run out of play um they or they they lose the fun and enjoyment and just pure joy that comes with it it happens like right at the beginning of people's journey and we see this like absence of joy of fun and Mm, that seems to be the point when it just like right now it is a task to complete and like i'm sure like it's the same with everything that i see the more fun it is the more likely you are to do it again like dude you're speaking my language that's exactly so when i do these workshops the whole first half of the day is about your process and the second half of the day is about your mental fitness mental health and so the whole idea is people probably think they're coming in and I'm going to tell them how to train. I barely speak about how to train because I'm so like exactly, I feel the same way. You need to create a process that allows you to have the most fun, not just this whole idea that you need to think positively. Yeah, that's important. But like experiencing positive affect is so much more powerful for growth and success and performance than just thinking positively. So if you can create a process that elicits positive affect, you can tie that to your personality, whatever it is. Fuck, that's game changer. That's how you get better. It's not how many times you squat a week. It's not fucking you know the exact percentage that you like rpm you need to hold on that bike it's like you need to enjoy what you're fucking doing and you can find and this is where the personality side of it comes in people think enjoy just means goof off and be stupid no if you're someone that's very conscientious 
that enjoyment is going to come by having a routine and sticking to it, by having your exact, by prepping your meals in advance and doing that. If you're someone that's high in openness, you're going to need a bit of variety. You're going to need a bit of malleability. You're going to need to be a little bit easier on yourself if you don't stick to the program completely. And that's where, you know, coaching people based Coaching people is such an art form when it comes down to figuring out their personality types, creating the right process and the right coaching style for them because it's not what they're doing. There are so many good fucking programs out there. You aren't getting better because you aren't enjoying it. Yeah. You aren't enjoying it because probably, and this is the other thing, we go back to that subjective experience. Why you may not be enjoying it is because you're looking at athlete X who's like, you're, because you're someone that is highly conscientiousness very low openness, whatever it is. And you're looking at me going, yeah, I just like to fucking bounce around and do this and have a bit of fun here. And you're like, fuck, I'd hate that. It would drive me insane. There's no routine. There's no structure. Yeah. Don't try to copy my process because it's my process. Figure out your process, figure out what makes you feel good. The fuck you can do that because that's how you're going to get better. This is precisely why I was a terrible personal trainer because, or from a business point of view, I was a terrible point of a personal trainer because the amount of times I had conversations with my clients and I was like, you fucking hate coming to see me. Like, why are you doing to this? Like, you need to like go and find something fun. Like stop coming, stop spending how much on me every month and go and spend yeah. that in pursuit of something you actually enjoy. Yeah. Because you're going to yeah. sick with that. Like you, you don't like coming here. You don't like doing these sets and reps. You don't like touching a barbell. Like go and like go back to what you were enjoying when you were a kid, when you actually, mm-hmm. when you were that person and you were healthy and you were enjoying it. Like that was, that's the true you. That's what you find meaningful. So use that. Mm-hmm. Don't fight against it. Mm. no i completely agree it's so fucking true and it's man it's why self-awareness sits at the base of my fucking pyramid of mental fitness mental health if you're not self-aware if you don't know what the fuck you want what you like what who you are how the fuck you ever going to do anything else on top of that it's funny we have a pyramid as well at mindset and and self-knowledge is at the foundation of that so it's essentially (laughs) (laughs) essentially the same thing Um, yeah it, it. it works it works man when when you went into education and well, I say when you went into education, when you furthered your education in terms of what you found uniquely interesting, mm. what did you find resonates in? Let's start with philosophy because like that's where I'm leaning. But like, where like what resonated with you and what did you dismiss? So went back to school. So I did two years of a journalism degree many moons ago. I was actually working full time as a journo when I started CrossFit got given a full-time job which had I never had the money to do it so I had that sort of double in education many moons ago um and then went back to do psychology so I think well I went back to do psychology for two purposes and this is again something that I've only really started to unpack recently looking at being such a bad people pleaser and looking at so many past decisions and stuff that I've done that I'm like man did you do that for you or did you actually want to you thought people want expected you to do that and I think that there was a lot of pressure I felt a lot of pressure from people and again this may be being based on their own spheres of world to, to make sure I had something to fall back on when I was finished being an athlete I knew I didn't want that. I knew that I wasn't going to be owning a gym. I didn't want to fucking own a gym. And I and I kind of, I fell out of love with I think as part of the process of just falling out of love with CrossFit in general because I saw it as a chore I fell out of love with coaching. Um something that's weirdly almost come back now. I do really enjoy coaching people. But um, I fell out of love with that. And so I was like, I need something else. And I was going through this whole kind of overhaul of my own mental health and working on my mental health. And 
I think I'd openly spoken about my mental health for the first time on social media, start of 2017. And the response was so overwhelming, particularly in the young men that reached out to me and were like, holy shit, like, thank you so much. That resonated. I'm struggling. I'm struggling. I'm struggling. I'm struggling. I'm like, where are the people with the liberty experience of the mental health, but also with what I saw as this profile in the sort of hyper-masculine world of fitness that can reach, how can I reach these people and how can I be of service to these people? Because there's so much more value in helping these people than there is in, in being an athlete. So I was like, well, everyone's like, you can't, I was like, how do I, I didn't, this, like, I don't know, it wasn't really like coaching. It wasn't like mindset coaching or anything like that back then. It was, well, there probably was, but I was, I don't know. People were just like, you go, you know, you can't, the way, the only way that I saw it was that I go back to uni and study to become a psychologist. And so it was kind of like, I did that. And that's funny as well. I did it for two, there was two kind of people pleasing elements in that. It was like, first of all, there was this weird, I don't know who I'd heard speak about it, but I'd heard this thing where people spoke about like, Oh, you know, coach was kind of the title that people that didn't want to get an education attached to their name. So I was like, I have to go and get an education, a formal education. And then there was like um, this other element of, oh, was, I'd listened to a podcast where basically people were bashing Tony Robbins. Like these psychologists were bashing Tony Robbins because there's like, he's a coach and he's like, he's not qualified in anything, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay, well, he can't, like you can't possibly help people if you don't have these qualifications. Then there was that pressure from people to go and do something that was conducive to a career after CrossFit. So I went back and I started just doing a degree in psychology. And obviously, like, the other thing is, I mean, fuck, I'm ADHD as they get. Studying is not really easy for me at all. Like, I don't believe I'm unintelligent, but I really struggle with, like, hey, sit down, read this, remember that, then write this report in this style. Like, there's so much so many boundaries around that that make it really difficult. I'm a very low conscientiousness guy myself. So I find study and I find formal study really hard, particularly dry sciencey stuff like psychology. That's interesting, but it's hard. I find the content really interesting, but I find the process of assessment and learning and all that sort of stuff really terrible. Like if you sat me down at the end of a semester and said, hey, tell me about this, I'd be able to tell you about it. But you go, hey, pick which one of these is the most right on a fucking multiple choice quiz. I'm like, uh, like write this report in this style with everything perfect. This I'm like, uh, like in scientific writing. Who the fuck reads scientific writing anyway? Like just academics. Anyway, that's my gripes with the academic system. But so I went back and I persevered and I stuck at it and I did my first year. But in that first year, I did a philosophy subject. I fucking, fucking loved it. And I did unbelievably at it too. Got like, it was like a 93 or something HD. So crushed it. And, and like all I want, I'd go and I'd do the philosophy class. All I'd want to do was talk about what I'd learned in that class. All I wanted to read was the texts and stuff from that class. And I was so fascinated by it. I went, I, I stopped at the end of that year because I was committed to going back to training full time. Um, and coincidentally, because I was there at uni full time, didn't make the games in 2017. At uni full time, the start of year, the year this year, didn't make the games. You know, coincidence maybe. Otherwise, it's just I can't juggle like that. But um, I, I went to online study, and I was trying to do the online study, and I kind of do a do a subject here that would be so fucking hard because the content was so dry. Even though it was interesting stuff, do a subject there, and then last year with lockdown and everything, I kind of went what am I going to do with my life? I considered a bunch of different random careers, 
And then finally decided, now fuck this, I'll go back and finish my degree. And then I looked around, I was like, I wonder if there's anywhere I can study both psychology and philosophy. And I found a degree at Sydney Uni that was a BA psychology, but allowed you to take a second major in philosophy. So you still do the full psychology stream that you're required to do to get registration as a psychologist and to do postgrad work as a psychologist. But I was also able to double major in philosophy. So every other subject I did would be philosophy based. And then I could go on and do postgrad work in philosophy. Now, it added an extra year to my degree. So what do you think everyone told me when I said that I was going to go and do this? Just finish your psychology degree. Why don't you just finish? What can you do with a philosophy degree? Like, why are you studying philosophy? And to be quite honest, I don't know, except for the fact that I fucking love it. Like, I don't know what the formal jobs you get reason as enough. a philosopher are. If you, if you love it, then that's reason enough that you find exactly. it meaningful. And I've never, there is no discipline, and this is psychology included, that I have found that is more relevant to our development intellectually and even just as a species, as fucking philosophy. If psychology is the what, philosophy is the how. Insofar as psychology is like, hey, this is how human beings work. This is how the brain works. This is why we think and feel the way that we think and feel. It's like, cool, thanks for all this knowledge. Then philosophy allows you to apply it. So what I like, what I'm specializing in, going to specialize in is ethics and existentialism. So I'm fascinated by moral philosophy because it's like, well, what's right and wrong? What's good and bad? And like, well, I had this experience as a young kid where I was constantly torn between, well, what is right and wrong? I've got mum, my family saying this, mm. everyone else saying that where is the truth in the midst of that so fuck yeah like you know serendipitous that i gravitated towards that um and then i mean like i like philosophy of mind stuff i like that kind of like identity and all that kind of a bit more abstract philosophy is fine philosophy of logic's awesome as well but for me it was that um, morals and ethics and then existentialism it's like what's the meaning of fucking being like what's the meaning of life like literally it's fuck it seems so stupid to be so into such that question but i am but mate, like it, the thing that's incredible is that so many people aren't, and I'm not saying that mm. as a bad thing or a negative thing mm. about them. But to well, me, and my inclination, an yo, it'd be easier, <laughs> like rather than like invest going, but why is there fucking anything? Like, like yeah, that yeah, is, yeah. Why does it matter? Yeah, why yeah. Fuck you. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I, if I could leave, if I could change that part of me, I think life would be much easier. It's so interesting that you see that. Um, you see that the massive Venn diagram overlay between philosophy and psychology. And it mm. seems to be that like, we've been trying to define what mindset is really for a long time. Like um, my, my coaches and I, like we're trying to think like, what exactly is it? Cause it's such a nebulous term. It means different things, different people. And it's like similar to CrossFit, we've been trying to put on like, okay, what are the domains of fitness within this? Like mm. um, just the same way that you can within like CrossFit. It's like, okay, you got strength, cardiovascular fitness, flexibility, agility, all that kind of stuff. Mm. Like, what are they here? And I think that one one of them's philosophy. One of them's probably the physical part that goes into tuning your nervous system. One of them's psychology, and one of them's probably the spiritual aspect or the spirituality. Like, am I looking? Yeah, inwards? for sure. Um, I can't. Which is a new one for me to explore. Holy shit! Yeah. Okay, so then we get into the plant medicine, <laughs> looking around there, because I think that's for someone who isn't. I'm the opposite of religiously inclined um, yeah, I'm yeah always have been but and through i had this fucking bufo experience yeah through plant medicine that is the few times i've gone shit there's something beyond this normal realm and i don't mean yeah. that in like it for someone who's inexperienced in this that sounds like all kinds of shit going on and like yeah. this can turn people off but that is the 
yeah, there's there's a lot there beyond <laughs> beyond what you see normally. Oh, bro. Yeah. I mean, I think like with with that formal education stuff, one thing I do want to say as well is I've and maybe this is now like looking back on why did I choose to pursue that degree and being more philosophically inclined. I have a better understanding of what I want to do with that now. And it's like that idea of maybe just like being a coach, being a coach that's able to help people with the knowledge of philosophy rather than having to go through the fucking six years to become a psychologist, you know, like that to me seems like a way of actually being able to pursue what's meaningful to me versus what I think I need to apply, which is a cool thing. Um, and anyway, so getting to the part, like the spiritual side of things, dude, like I'm the same. I was so, I was almost like anti-spiritual, not, no, not anti because I'm super open-minded and I'm really accepting it. If someone wants to consider themselves spiritual, religious, whatever, cool go for it like how you how you create meaning in the world and in your life is your choice and i'm not here to shit on anyone's choices around that because i just it's not my mo but i was also always like fucking super skeptical and now when i got asked to do the bufo experience a friend of mine saw that i was in tulum i don't even know what bufo was i'd wanted to do I'd yeah so to what do is bufo for people the bufo is is like the, the back of the toad like the crystallized venom from a toad and you smoke it and it's like so it releases what's called 5-meo dmt which is the most post potent psychedelic hallucinogen you can do um, so I've done, I've done DMT prior to this. I've done just about every recreational drug under the sun or dabbled in them over the years, had varying degrees of like, I wouldn't say religious experience, but like kind of like awakening experiences, particularly more so on things like, you know, mushrooms, uh, LSD, uh, DMT to an extent, but not that much. And then um, even uh, MDMA as well to an extent. But I've not had that on but I never like let like I never felt that I really lost touch with reality or like tapped into this other realm. And I was so I I'd heard ayahuasca was kind of the, the one to do. It's the one that everyone knows the most about. Never heard of Bufo. And I was in Mexico. I was in Tulum and I was on my own. And it's funny how the world works. And again, fuck, I don't want to be that guy's like the universe works in the right way. But it is like timing is timing is everything. And coming on this trip, there was a lot of shit that I kind of just left back home that I was like, I need to get out of this and I need to sort my life out and I need some clarity around a bunch of different stuff. I need to go through some change. And the best way I saw to do that was to go on this, this journey that I've been on. And it was at a real tipping point on this journey that I did, just was found myself in Tulum on my own. And a buddy of mine that had been there reached out and was like dude do you want to do a bufo experience and i was like i saw they do ayahuasca because like can you get me an ayahuasca one he's like i don't know about ayahuasca but do the bufo like he goes it's the best thing he sort of said it was the most insane thing he'd ever done the most transformative thing he'd ever done what were you wanting sort of like, at that point like what was the desire there well i guess exactly what i just said i'd come on this trip being like i need some sort of change i want something to happen i and curiosity more for me more than anything curiosity because i was like well you know what like i said i've dabbled with a lot of different drugs and sort of been like well like recreational drugs and been like fucking well i don't know like you know how can this be it was like and maybe even like not a condescending so much as like uh, i am so anti-spiritual i've always been so kind of like almost previously been so anti-spiritual anti kind of like what we see is what we get the world is what it is like you know blah 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 go science yeah, yeah yeah and then it was just like 
okay, like these, and then I'm reading about it and I'm like, fucking hell, people speak about this as if it's the most insane thing ever. I was also like, probably not in the frame of mind to go down an eight hour rabbit hole with ayahuasca. This thing's going to last like 20 minutes, yeah, 10 to 20 minutes. I can deal with that. I can deal with that. I've done DMT before. What the first time I did it was insanely potent, but I was like, it was came and gone within sort of 10 minutes. So I was like, okay, worst case scenario. And like my mental health wasn't great. I was pretty anxious, wasn't feeling good, was at this real crossroads with all these changes and all these big decisions I felt like I needed to make. I was like, okay, worst case scenario, you trip balls for 20 minutes and it's weird and you're like, that was fucking stupid and you walk out of there. Best case scenario, all these things that these people are telling you about are true and you're going to have this really profound experience. So I went. And I met up with this other guy who is in the CrossFit community, American guy. And he was the one who took my friends there. And he came in, he's like, do you want me to film it for you? And I was like, yeah, like if that, if you think it's valuable, it's like, yeah, like you want someone to film it. We went into the tent and also there was like this shaman and we did this like little ritual and we went into this tent. And then he brought this like woman in who was like the interpreter. And the woman weirdly looked like crazily like this ex-girlfriend of mine. And I was like, this is fucking weird. I don't know if I want her in here. Well, I yeah, yeah. see why. Yeah. rebirth psychedelic experience, but she was amazing. And like he, and then the shaman, we like we do this ritual. You do a breath work thing. You say a prayer. Then you do this breath exercise, and then you basically smoke this fucking tiny flake of crystallized venom from a frog. And they were like, you know, you'll 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 inhale for ten seconds, and then you won't even know that you're blowing it out. I'm like, all right, well, let's just see. Like, <laughs> um, let's just see how this goes. And the simplest way to describe it is so it's by far the most potent experience. And I'm not even going to say like psychedelic experience, just the most potent experience I've ever had. I inhaled it and then I was just gone. Like I was not... I was, I was weird. I was like, and I, and I recorded and I brain dumped about it afterwards because it was just, it, it sounds so weird. And anyone that's ever been through Bufo will understand it because it's exactly the same experience apparently for everyone sort of within the same context. I just went to this other place and in this other place that I could see there was just like these swirls and the swirls would be light and it would be light against and then light and then it would get darker again and the swirls would intensify that way. And there was this voice the whole time that was just like I, like, I was in this swirly space. And at first I was kind of like, this is weird. And then I was like, well, where am I being trying? I tried to like rationalize it all. I tried to fucking logically figure out where I was and what was going on. And then I had this intense feeling of just everything. Like I could feel my body, but my body didn't just stop there. It was connected to the people in the room who were connected to the world. It was just like this. It was just intense is the only way I can think to describe it. And it was like, um, everything. But then I was also, like, but I was in this voice. It was like, I, I was floating through what I could only describe as everything and nothing. Like I was, I was, it was everything and nothing in this void that I was in, surrounded by everything and nothingness. And this light and dark was just dancing back and forth, like swirling against each other quite clearly in some sort of conflict. And there was this voice that started, I don't know how long into my trip this started, but it was like, it was saying, you got to let go. You got to let go just surrender, like, let go. And so I was like, well, I have let go. I'm doing this now. And I was like, I was trying to argue with this voice about why I had let go. And I was like, no, you haven't like, just let go. And it wasn't arguing back. It was just saying, just let go, just let go. 
And I was like, like in my head, I was like, just relax, 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 trying to relax my body, but I was not connected to my body. And then it was as if like I was like I was relaxing. I could feel my awareness coming back to my body away from this everythingness and nothingness into my body the more I relaxed. And the more I relaxed, the lighter the light got. So the more the light swirls started to kind of win, let's call it. And it was like, I was like, I'm relaxing. I am letting go. And then it was like this kind of like I was letting go, but I was sort of aware and I wasn't quite like there. And then it was almost like, I was like, oh no, like I let go. And then I think goosebumps came out. Then it was like, whack, this fucking light whacked my chest. I opened my eyes for a split second and I was like, oh fuck, like am, am I done? And then no, I slipped back under. But then after that, like I just, it was just like this emotional purging. Like I was like screaming and crying and saying things like telling myself things and talking about like ways that I felt and telling myself I was allowed to feel these certain things and all this bottled up emotion. And, and then like, it was only really in the days after during the integration that I started to really piece together what the things that I was yelling out actually meant. Like, the, and I was crying and yelling and rolling and, you know, the whole experience probably lasted about 25 minutes from the time I smoked the thing to the time I was just like, fuck, okay, I'm back. Like, not back, but like, I stopped like having these kind of slipping in and out of like these emotional kind of purges. And then, yeah, it was just over the coming days of integration that I really started to feel the magnitude of it. And the simplest way to describe it, like, I don't want to, I don't want to say stuff that you're going to go and research about it. What I would recommend is anyone that's curious about this stuff, find a way to do it without necessarily knowing too much about it and going in with certain expectations. So I had very few expectations, very little knowledge about it. Yeah. Simplest way to explain it, to describe it without absolutely going into the, or, I mean, I went into detail about my trip just then, but without going into the detail of what this was, was it was like a death and a rebirth. And in that rebirth, there was a new part of me that was awake and that was aware. And that new part of me that was awake and aware was able to view myself and the world and everything with these new lenses. And most, the most profound of those new lenses was lenses was a lens of self-compassion. And that then allowed me to just crawl right back through so much shit that's gone on in my life and look at it more objectively, look at it more like deeper, look deeper into it. Look at the patterns, pick those patterns apart, pick myself apart, but not in the way that I would normally do. I've always been very self-critical, but it was in a kind of self-flagellation, you're so shit, you're a piece of shit kind of way. This was more of a general inquiry into well, what's causing you to do these things you don't want to do. Is it okay? You know, you've done these things in the past, but what are you going to do now moving forward to get better at it? And that lens of compassion was so powerful in allowing me to actually start to to, to identify these patterns and want to make meaningful change to them that wasn't driven by self-hate, was driven more by self-love. Yeah, it's almost like it allowed you to step outside of that rut. The like, or I, I mean, rut in terms of like a track that we form of of patterns, mm. and it mm. like it gives you that permission to. Uh, I'm back. I'm almost like mm -hmm. a, it's a scientific curiosity almost that you can develop, like where I see mm. it as it is. And like that compassion side of things is, is mm. fascinating that you found. But the profoundness of it and the, the, the intensity of it just rocked my perception of things like spirituality. I was like, okay, 
fuck me. Like that just happened. Like you just, and I think I was just like, wow, for like hours after. It was like, I can't, I can't figure out what happened. I don't know what happened. It defies belief. So for me, it's another layer of open-mindedness that's been added. And that's that layer of accepting, you know, spirituality being more than a bunch of doctrines used to fucking control people and to peddle bullshit. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say that's almost the opposite of spirituality. That's not thinking for yourself. That's believing what you're told to believe. And if that's what you figure out, if that's what like, okay, I've been through this investigation myself. I found like the, this is what I believe. And it so happens to match up with what's written in this book and what this dude's telling Mm -hmm. me, then great. Mm -hmm. If it's purely what you've been told to believe and you don't have a choice because that's what you've been brought up in, then that's where it gets tragic. Mm -hmm. It gets, it gets sad. Um, but How are you I, doing? Conscious of the time. Yeah, I was about to say. I can't say it. Um, it is coming up to quarter to four here. Um, I don't know. So we've been almost two hours. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Fuck <laughs> I need to go and get some dinner, bro. <laughs> <laughs> the cool. I think that's a good place to to end. Um, thank you so much for your time, mate. Um, no worries, really bro. Thank you so it. much. It's been a really cool conversation. It's really cool to do a podcast. Um, I haven't done one in a since coming on this trip. And so it's been a cool opportunity to speak from a very different place, I think. So it was really enjoyable for me. I'm Tom Foxley. Thank you for listening to the Limitless Athlete Podcast. Following this episode, we'll be releasing The Debrief, a summary of the wisdom within this conversation and the practical steps to applying it in order to enhance your own mindset. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts so you can start growing the mindset of a limitless athlete. If you're on iTunes, a five-star review and some kind words are super helpful too. For further mindset training resources and tools, head to mindsetrx.com or find us on Instagram by searching for mindsetrx. That's mindsetrxd. Embrace hardship in training this week and don't forget to tune in next week where you'll be learning all about the psychology of endurance. You'll also be hearing about the mindsets of some iconic athletes like Cara Webb, Jason Kleeper, Julie Fouché, Rich Froning and a little known guy called Matt Frazier. 